Welcome to Leaders and Legends of Online Learning, a podcast dedicated to the experts. Thank you for listening. Each episode, we'll be learning from the world's leading thinkers and practitioners in online learning and linking to ideas relevant to online teaching, working with online learners, and digital education. You can listen to the experts and check their profiles and link to some of their work on our website, www.onlinelearninglegends.com. I'm Mark Nichols, the interviewer in this episode. You'll meet Dr. Venkataraman Balaji in this episode. Balaji is Vice President of the Commonwealth of Learning and his inspirational work in online education extends the reach of learning opportunities into rural areas. Be prepared to be inspired by how the reach of educational opportunity is being extended to those in remote locations. It's my pleasure to be talking with Dr. Venkantaraman Balaji, who's Vice President of the Commonwealth of Learning, following almost a decade as Director of Technology and Knowledge Management there. Balaji's speciality is ICT applied to rural development, evidenced through the Aptus Project and the MOOC for Development. Balaji, it's great to be talking with you. Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here with you. And uh, I, I know I'm very conscious of the fact that I'm following in the footsteps of distinguished uh, speakers in this uh, podcast series. Uh, it's an honor for me to be included in this series. Uh, thank you again. Uh, thank you, Balaji. It's an honor for us to include you. Can we start with a brief overview of your career and online teaching? Uh, thank you. Uh, Mark, as you introduced me, I've been active uh, post my PhD uh, in the broad area of applied IT. For almost two decades, I was associated uh, with rural development and agriculture, in the, both in the not-for-profit sector as well as in the international public sector, mm-hmm. operating from India, also working in parts of sub-Saharan Africa. So I come to online learning from the side of applied ICT research in the area of agriculture and rural development. And I arrived at online learning, uh, largely my association with CALL, which started almost 24 years back uh, in 1990s, late 90s. My understanding was that uh, a lot of people in uh, rural areas of the developing world are in need of uh, codified learning resources. They get a lot of informal learning opportunities, but they are never very sure if this is the right one. Especially in agriculture uh, and food production area where it's almost like public health. You cannot use information that is not codified because in many developing countries, governments have very strong regulations on the information that farmers may use in order to produce food. And I realized that much of that information flow was getting uh, limited for various reasons, institutional uh, deficiencies and lack of communication channels. That's where, you know, I thought using ICT would make a difference. I carried out a lot of uh, experimental steps, small projects and large projects during the first two decades of my career to arrive at a wide variety of new approaches. I realized then that uh, my association with Uh, Commonwealth of Learning led me to realize that uh, delivery of information through the learning mode would be a far more effective one than merely delivering information per se. And uh, that was a very big realization also. It also came from uh, my uh, lot of interactions with the farming communities, especially in India, where people said that, uh, you know, a very reasonably structured delivery, but in pellets. Uh, somewhat like FAQs. They said it's the best way to deliver them information related to their production and distribution functions. 
that's when I discovered uh, the importance of online learning. And uh, mm. you could say mm. since 2002, I've been very closely associated with online learning. And as you can see, I come from the non-formal and informal sector into online learning, which is quite different from the way many people arrive at online learning in an organization, such mm. as the Commonwealth of Learning. So I think clearly early on you faced issues of connectivity for rural farmers. And I think that's where the Aptis project came about. Are you able to talk a bit about that? Uh, Aptis project uh, is based on the realization that uh, very large areas of the world, not just rural areas, will not have adequate connectivity uh, for a long time to come. I mean, the infrastructure deficiencies are way too much to be covered in even in one whole generation. That's my understanding. And uh, at the same time, you know, people do need access to, uh, as I said, codified, nearly formal information. How do they get that? There's a lot available on the web. So this is when uh, we, you know, we arrived at the possibility of uh, inventing something like Aptis, because we discovered, my team and I, here I must mention the name of uh, Mr. Ricky Cheng, who also works in call. Mm. We discovered that a typical smartphone uh, in the early part of our last decade, had quite a lot of computing power and could play the role of a micro server even. It had enough computing power. The problem was it was wasting a lot of power on the display. Now, if you could detach the display and use only the processor, we realized that that computational power can be used, and the power and the computational power in general can be used to uh, connect a very large number of tablets. And this was also the time when many governments were considering distribution of tablets to students in remote areas, uh, as well as in well-connected urban areas. So we looked around and uh, found that you could buy very inexpensive boards from various places, especially from Shenzhen in China. Between 40 to 60 US dollars, you could get an excellent board. And uh, we flashed uh, uh, you know, Ubuntu Linux into that. We also flashed OpenWrite, the, the kind of, uh, roughly speaking, the Wi-Fi management software, which converts the server also into a Wi-Fi hotspot. Yeah. So multiple devices could connect to that. So that has been a, uh, we, we have multiple versions of Aptus by now. And uh, I must say that this has been most successful in terms of the interest it excited in the Pacific region. Mm, mm. So, Balaji, are you able to t give us an example of how Aptis might have changed online teaching practice for those in remote areas? I can give one example. You know, Fiji is a, a archipelagic country. Mm. It has a main island and there are about 360 outer islands. Connectivity is available to a good extent in the main island, but not in the outer islands. So we sent Aptis device along with uh, a few tablets uh, through the courtesy of one of our consultants to a location, a high school in one of the outer islands. Mm. And it turned out that when he demonstrated, he, it turned out that that was the first ever time that both the teacher and the students had seen a digital video. So we had packed some 3000 Khan Academy videos in Aptis. So they, they greatly enjoyed it. In fact, I, uh, I have the photo of the teacher in tears because she had never seen a digital video before. Mm. This was the first ever time she saw it. Mm. Inspiring, thank you. Balaji, can you give us some idea as to the different themes for online learning that your work provides, um, particularly those that are still uh, relevant to us today, given your, your 20 years of experience? Uh, my, my feeling is that today, you know, the bandwidth is still a very big challenge. In fact, I can cite 
report by the U.S. National Academy of Sciences, which is one of the most prestigious uh, bodies in, uh, in formal science today, that uh, towards the end of uh, last year, they published this report, where they pointed out that even on mainland U.S., the continental U.S., uh, bandwidth availability was getting limited for the purposes of higher education. In other words, there is also a quality factor in connectivity that yeah. uh, a certain percentage of students living in uh, what would be called small town America because of lockdown could not uh, access uh, their learning materials and mentoring services the way several others could. So there are gaps even in a relatively well-endowed country like the United States. So that continues to be, uh, for me, a major concern. I mean, because today, pandemic has forced very large proportion of students uh, who are otherwise unconnected into going for uh, online learning. And yeah. this problem is not being, even this morning, I had a long chat with people in uh, Southern African development community, where they said that uh, the connectivity variations are so much that uh, they're finding it uh, very difficult to reach all the learners in semi-lockdown conditions. They are forced to use hub and spokes kind of system. So these problems are continuing. So this is still one of my uh, continuing themes. The other is, uh, in spite of wide use of smartphones in many parts of the world, the rural communities, especially women in rural areas, do not have access to smartphones or to data connectivity. Many of them do have connectivity to one generation before 2G, the plain, plain old simple phones. Now we are designing systems for reaching them with learning services and mentoring services. And uh, this is a system called MobiMook. It's a highly scalable system. And we have applied it. We have already done several trials in India quite successfully. And uh, we find that it attracts not only farmers, but even officials in, say, rural banks who want to make use of it themselves, both for their staff as well as for farmers, because banks are increasingly taking to learning as well, because they believe that unless they build the social capital, the financial capital cannot be tagged on to human beings. Actually, um, the, the MOOC for development has also been something that you've initiated through the Commonwealth of Learning. And right. I think there's been over 110,000 people who have undertaken that MOOC. Are you right. able to share with us perhaps some stories of those uh, who have gone through that MOOC and the difference that it's made for them? You know, that's again a very important uh, consideration. You know, back in 2011, it's a full decade since uh, the MOOC practice started as it is today. And uh, right then, in Commonwealth of Learning, we kind of commissioned a series of studies and understood that uh, a MOOC should be regarded as an event. I mean, it's not a course itself should be regarded as an event and also, also as a media event. Correspondingly, a lot of support systems need to be prepared beforehand. Without yeah. them, our thinking was that the MOOCs would be uh, far less effective. The other is we looked at uh, the prominent systems then, some of which continue to be prominent to this day, Coursera, edX, etc. Mm -hmm. And we realized that they were already meant for people in a milieu of high levels of connectedness. Yeah. You have to have that socializing uh, experience and habits of working online with a reasonable amount of connectivity. Whereas a lot of teachers in developing world are not, were not exposed to that, were not in a position to do so. This is why uh, our partners in Indian Institute of Technology in Kanpur helped us build an open source system called MOOCit, where the entry barrier is very low. It's a very simple system, allows a faculty member, a teacher with very limited uh, 
prior experience with the online world to get on and deliver a course. Again, we focused on agriculture because that's a community of teachers, which is relatively unreached by the online world. And we were extremely successful. Currently, you know, we, we started this process in 2014. Mm. And our idea was not to compete with the big players. Our idea is to provide new opportunities for new entrants. Mm. And so we have been very successful with that. I must say sometimes a course on integrated pest management during lockdown attracted 12,000 uh, learners in a single course. So that was, you can say, a measure of our success. Mm. Mm. And the uh, lessons from the MOOC for development, do you have any stories or accounts of those who have gone through the MOOC and it's made a difference to their practice? There is one story, uh, uh, for example, you know, as someone living in a relatively remote area of, uh, uh, you know, northeastern India, mm-hmm. also a disabled individual, but forced to work in a small tea farm and uh, earning, a, earning a livelihood in an extremely difficult way. And this individual told us that because of the MOOCs for development that he was able to access, he found new techniques that he could practice in spite of his uh, personal disability and was able to drastically improve his income. I mean, this is just one of the many lessons we could think of. And there were people who did uh, abundant number of courses. You know, sometimes they took five or six courses at one go and excelled in all of them. I met one such individual, so I inquired about what motivated him to do so. Then I also visited the place where he came from. I mean, this is back in 2016. And uh, this individual pointed out that uh, he came of a very, very, very remote area. And in fact, I don't uh, mind saying that this is an area that could be used in film sets uh, directly uh, as the equivalent of uh, gangland uh, without uh, much effort that was both desolate as well as remote. But he he was motivated enough because of the topics offered under MOOC for development to do several courses at one go, in spite of the limitations that he was facing in bandwidth, et cetera, because the topics were extremely important to him. That's excellent. So Balaji, no doubt because of the connectivity, uh, you're unable to make much use of video or animation. What are some of the techniques you use in the MOOC for development to help learners engage with the materials? This is a very, very important question. You know, back back in 2015, we were studying the trends in uh, various messaging systems. And uh, we realized that because of the success of uh, uh, paradigms like WeChat in China Mm. and the Facebook Messenger, the traffic uh, into the messaging systems was almost at par with the traffic into, uh, into other internet systems like the web. Now, the messaging systems have one advantage that they can operate at relatively lower bandwidth. Yeah. So we studied uh, some of these techniques and then created a messaging app through which a lot of video could be squeezed at even at lower bandwidth into that. Today, you know, uh, Mookit app uses that and uh, people can download videos even in relatively bandwidth limiting circumstances over a period of time, and uh, they can access them directly from the smartphone. So this, we found, it's, it has become almost uh, 25% of uh, the learners that we have on the MOOC, it, on the MOOC for Dev by area use the MOOC app. And they find the video download system extremely useful. Mm, excellent. It's now uh, mid-2021. The world is still recovering from COVID. Uh, Here in New Zealand, we're actually quite fortunate. Uh, Other parts of the world, of course, are are still deep in lockdown. 
What are your observations about online learning and education at the present time? Uh, is there anything about the current circumstances we face that we should be aware of as we consider online learning practice? Uh, now, let me say, the, this is not just a pandemic. You know, I would go back a little uh, into the past. I would look at the economic crisis, which mm -hmm. came mm -hmm. became evident in 2008. Yeah. And uh, the pandemic has added to that. And these two mega events, in my view, have created certain what I would call irreversible fundamental changes when it comes to uh, technology in general, especially le online learning uh, in particular. Mm. Part of the reason is that the economic crisis has removed uh, formal employment from the scope of many people. I mean, there is no guarantee that it, uh, the aspiration of doing a, being in a profession for 30 to 35 years, equivalent of one generation after a single degree, those days are uh, more or less over. That's It's rephrased as gig economy and so on. Mm. So that that is a that has had a major impact uh, the way online learning uh, will continue to evolve in my view. The other is the pandemic has kind of showed that uh, you have to have a lot of flexibility at institutional level to accommodate changing requirements of uh, people having to go offline uh, from face to face and into fully online mode. In, in other words, some level of blended learning is here to stay. And even when people return to campuses for uh, where face-to-face -face learning is the norm, it's unlikely that it's going to be wholly face-to-face. -face. And many universities and institutions that were primarily in the face-to-face -face mode have been forced to move uh, online and are and now are opening many online programs. Yeah. In other words, uh, not only online is coming in, also what I notice is that a certain flexibility is coming in. In other words, the economic crisis has led to the realization that a bundled four-year degree is not necessarily going to be the most desirable thing uh, anymore. People would may opt for it, but may still want many flexible courses that they can add on to that. And uh, the institutions will have an obligation to meet that. If an institution doesn't, there will be others who meet that demand because it's a rapidly growing demand. So this has led to uh, a fundamental change uh, in the way online learning is viewed by general public and would be delivered. The other important one, if I can take a few extra minutes, is that mm, all through the 90s, you know, uh, the technology development went on the understanding that the, the flow of money and information across the globe would not be restricted by national boundaries. I mean, you know, that was the part of the style of globalization. Now, we know that uh, since the economic crisis of 2008 and uh, various geopolitical changes, that style of globalization has more or less come to an end. I mean, a new style is emerging. And the new style will have a mixture of uh, national boundaries, national assertiveness on the one hand, and the requirements for uh, relatively unrestricted, unfettered flow of information that we are all used to. So there is going to be a balancing act. I mean, governments will assert themselves, then they may pull back. And in the process, what will happen is that a lot of new technology development, uh, online technology development, is going to be impacted. So we have to be prepared for some of these changes as well. Um, for example, open source developments have taken place on the assumption that you could create codes in one part of the world and that can be freely reused in another. What if governments decide that this is not going to be the case, that even if an individual writes a code, that he or she will need an export license. Mm. And governments mm. can easily think of things like this. It's in no time they will come up with things like this. Mm. Mm. All this is going to have an impact.
Yeah, so we are very much at a pivotal time, aren't we, where people are rethinking what education means and certainly what access and flexibility mean. Right. Yeah, uh, and I'm actually quite inspired by the work you've been doing to help people connect to those online opportunities. Can we move on to the research you'd most like to see? So if there was a researcher out there looking for a, a very, very good project, what would you advise them to look at? One, I mean, I always look at uh, immediate and short-term research because I've operated with small budgets all my life. And uh, my immediate need, of course, one, as I mentioned, that uh, bandwidth is a problem. One discovery we have made is that uh, you, when, you, when you deliver different services, learning services to uh, aspiring learners and uh, even to other mentors, the bandwidth requirements per service is not the same. Like uh, we all understand that video will have a much higher bandwidth requirement and a chat will have a much lower one. However, you know, when you offer a packaged system uh, like uh, a MOOC management system or a learning management system, you know, the system is not able to uh, distinguish between these requirements and it demands the same bandwidth for all services. Now, is there a way for us to, uh, in practical ways, to separate or segregate services in such a way that uh, people at lower bandwidth without difficulty can have uh, many services? And uh, some of the services will continue to work with uh, higher bandwidth. So some kind of, we have published a report recently in the Commonwealth of Learning using the ideas of a researcher on this topic. So there is need for doing some more research in this so that, you know, we go for a kind of a less packaged uh, kind of LMS, especially for developing countries. And it can make you, and in a way that does not make use of uh, today's uh, channels that can compromise privacy. Like, for example, people make use of uh, channels such as Telegram or WhatsApp, all of which are bound with data privacy issues. We therefore need to look for other alternatives as well, uh, which are linked to LMS. And uh, this is how uh, the concept of a new LMS may have to evolve. Uh, so LMS originally came from the milieu of face-to-face -face teaching, and they were supplementary to face-to-face -face teaching. Today, we may have to go in a totally different direction. That's one area. The other area, I think, is uh, artificial intelligence, for where the teacher is at the center. You know, AI in education is a much discussed topic. And I was in, a, in, in the UNESCO meeting uh, organized uh, with the support of government of China in Beijing two years back. And uh, it was very interesting that the policymakers, mostly ministers and a few senior officials, said that the teacher should be at the center of it all in AI in education effort. And I think this is uh, going to be a very, very significant requirement. And uh, we find that currently there is no single framework available for putting teachers and researchers in HCI uh, and to develop new products and ideas. And this is an area where I think a lot of research needs to be done, uh, where teachers are going to be at the very center of AI in education. And it also has to be addressing data privacy concerns because once again, during the Beijing conference, one of the ministers said that uh, he believes that he should not be authorizing flow of uh, student information out of his national boundaries because he believes it's really their wealth and that all uh, operations should be done inside the nation like the way he said petroleum or iron ore i mean we want to process everything to generate wealth for ourselves why not the same way with uh, student information as well now that's why i said mm -hmm. nations can suddenly come up with uh, new acts in this area therefore we the standard AI approach of uh, accumulating vast masses of data 
and using them to arrive at inductive uh, generalizations might not be the only route forward. The old route of rules-based AI plus allied uh, technologies may have to come in, but a new framework mm. is necessary. Mm. Can I pick up on the comment you made about placing the teacher at the centre with AI? Are you able to provide uh, perhaps your, your own view as to where that should go? You know, for example, we are looking at uh, a typical teacher in a developing country mm. uh, teaching a, a topic in, say, general science to high school students. Now, the teacher does not have access to a good lab and uh, may not have access to uh, the right kind of support materials. But the OER movement today has created uh, a vast mass of highly reusable materials. I mean, many, most of which will meet any quality requirement. However, the teacher is in no position to locate them, identify them, judge them for suitability for her students or learners, her, or the, her cohort. Now, can we deploy AI to create uh, recommender systems? Mm. which are highly allied to the particular type of curriculum and the particular milieu in which the teacher and students are, learners are. And uh, can it make it make very specific recommendations to the teacher who then is able to make use of it in her teaching? So this is one example. Mm. Mm. Look, uh, throughout your career, no doubt there will be those who have influenced your thinking and practice for online learning. Are you able to mention uh, perhaps one or two of those people who have most influenced you over the years? Well, I mean, one person whose ideas I've followed uh, is, of course, Sir John Daniel. You know, back in 2003, he visited India when, where I was a worker at the time in, in one part of India. I visited him and he addressed what I would call a football field, of, uh, football field full of vice chancellors because there were so many people eager to listen to him. And at that point in time, he made one statement that online learning will always be a support system. Uh, the typical open and distance learning using other modes like radio, television, correspondence, etc., would continue to remain dominant. But 18 years later, you know, that has changed. In fact, I would even say online and the mode is now becoming the dominant one. Other ones are becoming its support modes. And in the, in the process, you know, I've learned much from him. And uh, I understood uh, how resistant higher educational institutions can be to changes mm -hmm. of the type that we are discussing today. Yeah. And how you never confront uh, people holding uh, influence and power in these institutions. You work with them or you can sort of try to bypass them, but never confront them. This is something I learned. I would say he has been uh, the biggest influence uh, on me in my thinking. There are several others I, uh, I worked with, but I would name him as the uh, single biggest influence on me. Mm, excellent. Balaji, thank you for your time. I'm very, very impressed by the reach that you're providing for uh, online education opportunities for those in remote rural areas and very impressed too by the millions of lives you would have actually improved through the efforts that you've been putting through Commonwealth of Learning and your focus on projects such as Aptis and the MOOC for Development. That, in my view, certainly makes you a leader and a legend of online learning. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you, Mark. You're operating a great series and it's an honour to be part of uh, this series. Thank you for your time. Thank you for reaching out to me. Thank you, Balaji. You can learn more about Balaji and his work from our website. That concludes this episode. Be sure to go to our website, www.onlinelearninglegends.com, to follow up on this episode's guest. You'll also find links to others whose ideas continue to inspire and teach online learning professionals, and you can subscribe to future interviews. If you know of a leader or legend we've not yet talked to, please do drop us a line at onlinelearninglegends at gmail.com. 